This is Peter Rose, here with the second half of my mini-diary from 2021. In the preamble to the first half of the diary, January to June, which is also available on our podcast, I mentioned that I've always kept a journal. It's a curious compulsion, writing a diary, but it's a necessary one, psychologically. If I go for a week or more without recording events, I feel incomplete, unexamined perhaps. I feel exactly the same way if I go more than a few days without reading a serious book or some poetry. So here is my edited diary, containing about a sixth of the full diary from 2021. It has musings on my reading, literary events, ABR news, some gossip, but also a continuing record of my mother's decline. Elsie had gone into aged care last March. On top of all her physical and emotional challenges, the second half of the year brought more lockdowns, COVID in her nursing home for the first time, and then Omicron. Elsie died earlier this week, age 95. July 7. We're staying in Dalesford, a small cottage on Hearts Lane. It's freezing, but we put on our heavy coats and scarves and pretend we're in Europe. The kitchen is well-appointed, copper even, so C is in his element. I finished Gideon Haig's book on Dr. Evett and Dennis Altman's one on tenacious monarchies before greatly enjoying Nicholas Rothwell's essays in Quicksilver, his essay on the Europeans in Australia, Leichhardt, D.H. Lawrence, etc., is exceptionally good. July 8. My eldest great-nephew's 21st. When I asked him what he wants for his birthday, Lachlan, who still calls me Uncle Peter, said he would like to come for dinner at our place following a tour of the NGV with C as his guide. We drove to Castlemaine and called on Catherine Harbour-Ree, now happily ensconced there. We reminisced about ABR, of which Catherine was deputy chair in the 1990s, eventful years, it must be said. She marvels that anyone still speaks to me after 30 years in publishing. July 9. Refreshed after our sojourn in Dalesford, we rose early and were home by 10.30. I spent a couple of hours at Boyd catching up, then visited Mum, who was waiting for me in the foyer. I missed him, I heard her say to one of the nurses as I left. July 10. Sydney is in for it now. 50 cases yesterday. A month-long lockdown seems inevitable. July 11. I went on with Julia Parry's book on Elizabeth Bowen, those fascinating tensions and torsions between her and the caddish Humphrey House, Parry's grandfather, and that great passage where Bowen addresses him as the committed writer she always is, even in bed. Quote, Remember that you had Elizabeth Bowen to contend with. I mean, a confirmed writer, someone accustomed to getting herself 
or himself, across without outside opposition. One spends one's time objectifying one's inner life and projecting one's thought and emotion into a form, a book. Because it is hard for me, being a writer before I am a woman, to realise that anything, friendship or love especially, in which I participate imaginatively, isn't a book too, unquote. Parry's not a brilliant writer, but this doesn't matter when the story is as fascinating as Parry's triangulated one about her grandparents and the inspiredly selfish Bowen. July 15. Suddenly, we're about to go back into lockdown. Wretched news which lowered everyone. I badly wanted to go out partying before it began and took C to 38 shares for a Negroni. One year ago, I confidently predicted that by this stage in 2021 would have gone through five lockdowns, and so we have. They all thought I was mad. July 16. How fortunate we are at ABR to be able to stay open again because of our magazine status. I'm not sure I could have managed remotely. Hard to teach an old dog new tricks. This afternoon, the jolly judges took 15 minutes, not two hours, as when they decided the shortlist, to choose Camilla Chadari as the winner. At 5.30pm, the nursing home rang to say that mum had fallen again in the bathroom. July 19. Everyone's being circumspect as the local numbers continue. 16 today and as New South Wales goes from bad to worse, still 100 daily. I didn't leave the office once and travelled both ways on empty trams. At work, I took a call from a gentleman wanting to know if his business could stay open. July 23. Thank goodness we didn't go to Pran Market on Saturday. Had we done so, we'd now be in isolation for a fortnight. Now we're all being very wary. ANU wants me to proceed with the publishing seminar next Tuesday, despite the cancellation of my visit to Canberra. We'll do so via Zoom. They have 30 takers. We've also had a good response to the first of our editorial information sessions. July 24. Never had I thought to watch the Olympics, but that's what we did. Even the rowing. Meanwhile, stupid anti-lockdown, anti-everything protests in Sydney and Melbourne, thousands of morons and exhibitionists. I remembered this quote from Elizabeth Strout's novel, My Name is Lucy Barton. It has been my experience throughout life that the people who have been given the most by our government, education, food, rent subsidies, are the ones who are most apt to find fault with the whole idea of government. July 25. I was fascinated by an article in the New York Times about a mystic Chilean photographer, Sergio Lorraine, devotee of Henri Cartier-Bresson, and as good, I should say. I must get his book of London photos. I'm flying through Damon Gelgut's new novel, The Promise. Mark Morofsky at Melbourne University, an admirer, will review it for me. We inspected Mum's unit, 
before it goes on the market. I never want to see it again. Too sad. Then we drop some things outside the nursing home, including a long letter. It's odd to be writing again to Mum. It brings back memories of my long missives from Europe in the 1970s. I remember Dad telling me that she threw one of them across the room, desperate to know my news, but defeated by my handwriting. Arabic, she called it. July 26. A thumping donation has arrived. When I thanked the donor, he said, I can afford it and it gives me great pleasure. Damien Ma, a young Australian in Oxford, proffered the best excuse I've heard in my three decades as a publisher when apologising for being late with a review. He's been hit by a car, but will submit by Sunday. July 27. Woke at five, anxious and forensic. I have a seminar to lead in five hours' time. Then I finished Decline and Fall, As I did when I was young and learning to write, I found myself marking every second limpid line. Here are three examples. Many a young reporter was handsomely commended for the luxuriance of his adjectives. Up and down the shining lift shafts, in and out of the rooms and along the labyrinthine corridors of the great house, he moved in a golden mist. Mrs. Bess Chetwind reappeared from her little bout of veronal, fresh and exquisite as a 17th-century lyric. The ANU seminar went well, helped by James's astute contributions. Already there have been some good publishing outcomes. July 28. We both visited the nursing home at 10.30am, the manager having given us permission to see Mum downstairs, away from the other residents. The place is still in lockdown. Sandy brought her down. Ineffably frail, she was quite emotional when she saw me. I told her I'd never had such an effect on anyone before. July 31. Saw Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf for about the 30th time. Always good to see it on a big screen. Afterwards, we went to Carlton and met Donata and Domenico Carazza at readings. I congratulated Donata on buying the Collins Bookshop in Mildura. I think back now with fondness as my stint as manager of the Mumus Bookshop in the 1980s. My parents were shopkeepers and it suited me. Maybe still does. August 3. Dawnings. Before dawn, I'm awake with the rubbish bins, always fascinating the city's preliminary shivers. Marvellous to rise to Montale, abandoned for years, yes, and Montiliano again. Then I read about death in Damon Gelgut's novel In a Strange Room. All my life, fundamentally, I've been resisting the strangeness and severances of death especially with regard to my parents, my mother. All my industry, all my poetry in a way, has been a form of resistance, of delay. Only now, when she is already in a sense gone from me, herself, do I begin to accept the inevitable. 
Here's a quote from the Gulgut novel. A journey is a gesture inscribed in a space. It vanishes even as it's made. You go from one place to another and onto somewhere else again, and already behind you there is no trace that you were ever there. The roads you went down yesterday are full of different people now. None of them knows who you are. In the room you slept in last night, a stranger lies in the bed. Dust covers over your footprints. The marks of your finger are wiped off the door. From the floor and table, the bits and pieces of evidence that you might have dropped are swept away and thrown away, and they never come back again. The very air closes behind you like water, and soon your presence, which felt so weighty and permanent, has completely gone. Things happen once only and are never repeated, never return, except in memory. August 4. I'm reading Tim Bonnie Hades' new book on God-forsaken Afghanistan, currently being overrun again by the vermin Taliban after the US withdrawal. Much good that little adventure did anyone. August 5. Coffee with Paul Delgano this morning after he accepted a couple of books for review. Inevitably, we discussed the pandemic, wondering when lockdown might recommence. A week? A fortnight, perhaps? Within hours, the state government had announced another lockdown from 8pm. So much for our dinner at Three Idiots with Paul Kilday. I asked Anders Villani if he wanted to cry off from our planned drinks, but we went ahead and met at the Fromagerie near Readings. Ligon Street was packed, we sat on the footpath. It was like carnival, everyone very buzzy. It's all too believable now. There's a weary kind of acceptance. I have no doubt we'll go through this for months to come. On the way home, I went to Three Idiots and collected a mountain of takeaway Indian in solidarity. August 8. I've begun Guilty Thing the biography of Thomas de Quincey by Francis Wilson, whose new book on D.H. Lawrence is such a phenomenon. August 9. All people can talk about, lament, is the lockdown. Everyone is so abject, so leaden. There's much interest in Theodore L.'s essay and podcast following his appearance on Geraldine Duke's radio program on Saturday. This evening I completed the census. How many more times? August 10. Not for a while have I been up at 3.30am. I guess it's the jolly prize ceremony that's woken me up. And life. It went well, of course, ably produced and co-compared by Jack Khalil on the switch at Boyd. Just the two of us with an audience of 80 or so. Seven speakers and no fluffs. It was over in less than an hour. Less is more. August 11. Long chat with Welbeck scholar David Jack about an article on Giorgio Agamben and the pandemic for the October issue. Controversial though the subject may be, and loath though I am to give succour to anti-vaxxers, it's time maybe I publish something on this endless submission 
or is it servitude? Meanwhile, the government has extended the lockdown for another week. August 12. Watch the original Tinker Tailor soldier spy. Both of us would have sworn that Alec Guinness was in his 80s, yet he was 65 when he made it. I saw Guinness as Dean Swift in London in 1976. Yahoo was the name of the play. August 15. In the window at the Avenue Bookstore, I spied another of those small Princeton compilations from the classics. I thought the title was How to Be Continent. Putting on my glasses, I realised it was How to Be Content, which is much harder. August 16. My mother's 95th birthday. None of us could quite believe we'd been allowed to enter the nursing home. We sat in a small, sunny room near reception, decorated with balloons and such. When Mum arrived in a wheelchair, she said she never expected to see any of us again. As always, she wanted news about everyone. She sat with Andrew, her great-grandson, who leaves for Denver University on Thursday and will be away for some years. She asked him to write to her, but not in Spanish. Two of Andrew's roommates are Spanish. Home, I began Burning Man and revisited Wolfe's short, brilliant essay on de Quincey's Confessions. August 19. Much correspondence with David Mason about D.H. Lawrence. David has written a brilliant review of Burning Man for the Hudson Review. He's less enamoured than Geordie Williamson, but still admiring. David reveres DHL and despises the Sunderers, Lawrence's term, from Kate Millett on. I told David that Lawrence's poem Bibbles reminded me for the first time of Sylvia Plath. He said that Plath loved Lawrence, mainly because Tom Hughes did James Jang noted that Marion Moore, the subject of his own PhD, admired Lawrence too. Little wonder when one revisits poems like The Ship of Death. Today was, the tabloids proclaim, our 200th in lockdown. There were 60 cases here, almost 700 in New South Wales, which is now clearly out of control, I won't be surprised if we're incarcerated for another 200 days. August 23. Finished Burning Man and read Auden's essay on Lawrence in the dyer's hand. Auden, though almost as silly in his private talk as Lawrence, is always the most sensible of literary critics. Here he is on writers. Quote, Very few writers can be engagés because life does not engage them. For better or worse, they do not quite belong to the city, It's a point I tried to make in a review of one of Hilary Mantel's Cromwell novels, how unusual Mantel was in really understanding the machinations of power. August 26. I'm loving Kangaroo with its hilarious portrait of Australians, When Summers and his wife try to find a bungalow in Bondi, he remarks on all the impossible names woundedly. 
John Rickard has reviewed Dennis Altman's book on the strange persistence of monarchy. In it, John notes that the long-lived Thai king, outraged by Rogers and Hammerstein, banned the king and I. It went ahead here, though. Not even Ming could stop it. John was in the cast of the first Australian production back in 1962. September 1. I did enjoy my podcast interview with Francis Wilson, the Lawrence biographer. These podcasts are taxing, but this one was fun. Francis was mordant about earlier biographies. Quote, they write about him as if he were a normal person, not the weirdest man who ever lived. September 5. I began Jeff Dyer's book, Out of Sheer Rage, which is about writing a book, or rather not writing a book, about D.H. Lawrence. I'd watched his online conversation with Francis Wilson at the LRB bookshop and was duly charmed by both of them. I assumed that Dyer's book would be conventional, but it's anything but a kind of anti-book worthy of his hero. At first I thought it reflexively monanian and repetitious. Then Dyer's humour won me over. I'm sure Frances wrote her book with a sense of how Dyer had upped the ante. September 7. C is bolting through War and Peace for the third time. First time he read it for the love story, then the history, now the battles. I'm reading Giorgio Agamben's rather shorter book, Where Are We Now? The Epidemic as Politics. David Jack has given me a fascinating essay on the Italian philosopher's libertarian response to the pandemic. Here's a quote from Agamben. And what is a society that values nothing more than survival? Unquote. I think D.H. Lawrence would have approved wouldn't he and Nietzsche despise this timorous, platitudinous age? September 10. Mum's insurer has written to her asking if she's thinking of getting into golf. Visits to the nursing home are no longer possible, following a COVID case in one of the homes. No other details. September 11. New South Wales Premier, Al Glad, daily rallies the troops and congratulates them on how well they're doing. Today it was 1,600 cases and eight more deaths. This is why she has suspended her daily press conferences. Frances Wilson, pleased to learn how well our podcast is doing, seemed delighted when I invited her to review for ABR. She'll start with Eric Wilson's new book on Charles Lamb. I sent her the photos of why work I took all those decades ago. I'm whizzing through David Storey's amazing posthumous memoir of existential terror and mental illness, a stinging delight, all caused, it seems, by the death of his brother while David was in utero. Stupendous amounts of newsprint devoted to the 20th anniversary of 9-11 But what of all the horrors caused by US mendacity or ineptitude? A late walk near the shrine, refreshing, the startling verdancy of oaks. We don't even remotely fantasise about planning ahead anymore. Restaurants, parties, travel, 
anything. September 12. We're so bored, we've begun to haunt cemeteries. This morning we visited the Melbourne General Cemetery and then the streets of Prince's Park. Near Arnold Street, we met Gideon Haig. He was amused by Australia's hypocritical outrage about Afghanistan, the decision not to play a test against the national team. I congratulated Gideon on his book on Dr Evatt. He thought it time to resurrect Evatt, but not a good time for sales. Mark Rubo reports a 40% downturn in sales this year. September 18. Finished Pride and Prejudice, sufficiently awed by its formal and claustrophobic perfection. Such ironies, they pelt at us like squash balls. September 19. A call from the nursing home came last night. They couldn't find ER's hearing aids. This morning they located them. Without them, because of her nerve deafness, she is marooned. September 20. Nice responses to Mindy Gills being named our latest rising star. I'm reading Christopher Elias's book Gossip Men about J. Edgar Hoover, Joe McCarthy and Roy Cohn, odious trio. September 21. The fourth series of The Crown has rightly won many Emmys, including one for Gillian Anderson. A young interviewer asked the diva whether she had discussed her performance with Mrs Thatcher. Anderson paused, then said that she hadn't spoken to Margaret lately. It reminded me of the time we went to a media preview of the biopic Hoover. A young publicist stood up and referred to the great J. Edgar Hoover to titters from the older cineasts. September 22. This morning proved to be as dramatic as recent weeks. I worked at home and was sitting at my desk when it began to shudder. Then the building shook. I assumed it was about to collapse and tore down the stairs to get away, not putting on my shoes, but remembering to grab my mask. How well we have been trained. Outside I met other neighbours. We gathered in the drive wondering what on earth had happened. C rang to say that they had felt it at Boyd, which had been evacuated. Then word reached us that they had felt it in Ballarat and Horsham and Canberra. So we knew it was an earthquake. Victoria's severest one in years, it turned out. Then I was summoned to the nursing home. This time I was able to enter Mum's room, so much better. Mum was sound asleep and could not be woken for 45 minutes. When she stirred, she wanted to know that everyone was all right. I imagine her last words will be inquiries about others. Not a bad way to go. She'd slept through the earthquake. It said everything, in a way. The woman who loved news more than anyone I've ever known, our Reuters Rose, was oblivious. September 24. Public holiday for the absent grand final. Hundreds of cases every day, 740 today after a record total yesterday. I think everyone has given up. C, finishing Voss this afternoon, enjoyed this passage about Miss Linley. Quote, Dedicated to culture, this immortelle recoiled from poetry, 
almost as if it had been contrived as part of an elaborate practical joke, and might shoot out without warning to smack her in the middle of her withered soul, she was happier with established prose. I saw Mum at midday. An Indian aide was feeding her lunch, superbly patient, morsel by morsel, all of it, remarkably, then a cup of ice cream, Mum smiling thanks and encouragement. Poignant it was to watch her being fed because of memories of watching her feed my brother all those years, smiling thanks and encouragement. Jen, the nurse on duty, was wearing a Collingwood Guernsey. Mum seemed cheerful. We communicated mostly via the board, testing my handwriting. September 25. I watched the grand final. Quite an amazing game. Just when we all assumed the Bulldogs would pull away in the third quarter, Melbourne came back with a vengeance, a famous victory, exciting to watch. At halftime, we had sausage rolls, deviled eggs, and angels on horseback, good butch fare. Inevitably, I thought of the last time Melbourne won a grand final in 1964, when Norm Smith's side pipped Collingwood during Dad's first year as coach. I can still feel the Southern Stand rock during Ray Gabalik's mighty run that put Collingwood in front moments before the end. October 3. Began the day with some essays of Elizabeth Hardwick, hoping she'd written about Jane Austen, but somehow doubtful. Here she is on William Faulkner, his hallucinated imagination, as she puts it. Now I must read Sanctuary, which she rates with typical precision as one of his six or seven masterpieces. Hardwick is dryly hilarious about Bernard Berenson, whom anyone could visit at Itati. Such was his need for American company news, she hypothesizes. Quote, you had a belated feeling you were seeing the matinee of a play that had been running for eight decades. This afternoon I worked on poetry for two hours, the old clerical method, moving from one draft to another, advancing them, struggling with them, finding old poems I'd forgotten, even finishing another two poems in the Catalan Rag, which now runs to more than a hundred poems. David McCooey wants me to publish an annotated edition, but I think that may have to wait until after my death. October 4. Awake at 4, and at my desk by 5am, head racing, a lively week ahead. I enjoyed Hermione Lee's essay on the multiple biographical versions of Jane Austen. No one was as malicious as Austen, only Gwen Harwood perhaps, who must have liked her. Here is Austen on a Mrs. Hall of Sherborne, who, quote, was brought to bed yesterday of a dead child some weeks before she expected, owing to a fright. I suppose she happened unawares to look at her husband, unquote. Now I'm reading Edward Said on Austen, much admiring his lapidary prose. James Jang writes about Said for our November issue. October 5. We ended up with 1,300 
porter entries, same as last year. October 6. Began the day early with more Hermione Lee on life writing, this time an essay on how to end it all. I like these last words of English evangelical Caroline Leakey, quote, Farewell, dear drawing room, you have long been devoted to God. Lee concludes drolly, Perhaps I should have called this essay From Champagne to Complan, unquote. Chekhov supposedly took champagne at the end. Larkin, stuck in the lavatory, called for Complan. October 7, when I offered a contributor Evelyn Dewar's book The Dancer, she declined, saying that the only time she ever went to the ballet, she was asked to leave because of her snoring. Alighting from the tram coming home, same driver even, I was nearly cleaned up by a car at Tivoli Road for the second night in a row. It's dangerous out there. October 8. Recent work poetry has published Paul Hetherington's Chinese edition of Australian poetry. I have two poems in it, The Subject of Feeling and The Condemned Tree, my only environmental poem. James Jang has recorded the former in Mandarin. It seems awfully longer than the English version. James liked my use of the word gidified, as in the gidified wreck from which my brother was prized, but he wondered how the translator coped. October 9. The 20th anniversary of the launch of my book, Rose Boys. Lots of memories of that day at Victoria Park. Everyone seemed to be there, including champions whom I idolised as a child, all queuing up with my friends and relations. I thought of inscribing Bernie Quinlan's copy to the sinusure of every eye, but wasn't sure how this would be received. Well, at least I can say I've signed autographs at Victoria Park. Determined to create a Roseboy cocktail for the occasion, I wrote to Ian Dixon, who recommended Rosemary for Remembrance. October 10. Long, anguished, strangely inevitable dream about my mother, from which I would waken, half-conscious, with relief, only to return to it. I was looking after her, taking her out, returning her to the nursing home. Surprised at one point, I'd allowed her to drive, worried for her, myself. She was somewhat younger, recognisable, and at one point she began singing to me in that beautiful, unforced voice I'd almost forgotten, exactly as she would always sing around the house when I was a child. So I have heard her again. October 11. I was sure I'd read all of Philip Roth, but somehow I missed The Professor of Desire, the first David Kapesh novel. Now I'm relishing its post-Portnoyan indecencies. October 15. ABR's Adelaide Festival trip, which we began promoting yesterday, has sold out. We even have a wait list. October 17. Lockdown ends, so they say, on Friday. November 1. 
Last night I dreamt I slept outside Mum's nursing home, waiting to be let in. November 4. Delighted to hear that Damon Gelgut has won the Booker Prize. November 5. Finished Sean Kelly's withering study of Scott Morrison on the tram and promptly emailed him my congratulations. I told him it was a necessary chastening book. Sean is moving to Melbourne in January, perhaps one of 14 people inclined to do so. November 6. Our first venture into town since the Second Punic War. At Hill of Content, I bought Everyman's thumping edition of D.H. Lawrence's stories. I began Teju Cole's Black Paper, which opens with a thrilling chapter on Caravaggio. Now I must visit Messina. November 8. Worrying and tedious loss of outlook at work after a case of malware, whatever that is, the whole day was consumed with it. November 12. Lunched at the Carlton Wine Room with Nathan Hollier of Melbourne University Press. I congratulated Nathan on MUP's brilliant year. Nathan told me that Stuart McIntyre's cancer is at the palliative stage. He's publishing a fesh rift of sorts. Graham Davison has a chapter on the Oxford Companion to Australian History, which I commissioned with Stuart, Graham Davison and John Hurst. November 16. After our fortnightly staff meeting, we reviewed the year nominating favourite issues, covers, features, programs, and discussing features that hadn't worked and ones we might add. A fruitful exercise. We're planning a new politics column and crosswords. November 18. Our first theatre since the MTC's Emerald City early last year. The new As You Like It from the same company was much better. A tonic. November 26. David Epstein visited Boyd and took the Donald Horn omnibus for review. David, who was head of media during the Hawke Keating years and briefly chief of staff to Rudd, now lives at a place called Cherokee in a house whose substantial garden was designed by von Mueller. November 27. Stephen Sondheim has died, aged 91. The New York Times review is encyclopedic. I always enjoy Anthony Burgess's reviews, workmanlike in the best sense, full of little jewels too like this. Quote, Samuel Beckett's devotion to James Joyce was extreme. Joyce was proud of his small feet, and Beckett tried to make his own feet as small in homage. The overtight shoes were not merely a homage. They were a mode of self-excruciation wholly in keeping with the Beckettian view of life as a place of pain. November 28. So here we go again. Omicron, possibly resistant to vaccines, has been detected in South Africa and it's spreading fast. God help us. 
to the Burundara Sporting Complex for the grand final of the Football Wheelchair League, which the Robert Rose Foundation sponsors. There was a huge crowd to watch Collingwood win narrowly. Tim Byrne has just sent me a passionate tribute to Stephen Sondheim. In the evening, to the Astor for Roberto Rossellini's voyage to Italy. Apart from all its other qualities, the sight of Ingrid Bergman's felt majestic moving through those galleries I longed to revisit would be quite enough. November 29. Another busy day at Boyd. What a team. Andrew Furman has given us an excellent review of the musical Moulin Rouge. Never did I think to end up reviewing something like Moulin Rouge. Home early for once. I sat in the park and read The Merchant of Venice. It's such a complex, doom-laden, saturnine play, full of morosity, yet rising to magnificent poetry from Portia and Lorenzo, culminating in Shylock's abrupt departure in the fourth act and the sadistic teasing of Portia over the rings, which I never enjoy. December 3. I knew the day would bring more bad news, but I hadn't guessed it would take the form of a complete lockdown at the nursing home. One of the residents has tested positive. All staff and residents, all double vaccinated, are being tested. This means no visitors, of course, for at least 14 days. December 6. To Sydney for the week. My first visit since March 2020, unbelievably. I'm based at the Judith Nielsen Institute's splendid headquarters in Chippendale. December 15. C is reading Praetorita, brave man. I've never read John Ruskin, Gig Ryan's hero. Gig told me recently about a brilliant typo which found its way onto the cover of a book she was meant to be extolling. Quote, Andrew Rutherford stamps Horace's concerns as eternally ours became internally ours. I capped this with the time that Barrett Reed of Overland changed my improbable line because I never married a bronchial woman with bad taste to because I never married a bronchial woman with good taste. December 18. I made the mistake of seeing The Lost Daughter, a fascinating film with Olivia Colman. The subject, Complex Mothers, was not perhaps ideal. After that, I needed a steadying poltergeist martini. December 19. Duratus Asnitis is back from Perth. We set off to Carlton and found a table at Ronnie D'Astasio's new pizzeria off Ligon Street. He was seated behind us, beaming in the corner. Then we headed to a massed vagabond reading at Princess Hill in a disused railway station. Vagabond was launching six collections. Philip Mead stood in for John Kinsella. We spoke to Philip later. He's been stranded in Canberra for much of the year. December 25. Visited Mum at 11am. Things were pretty chaotic in the foyer, where the man before us had just tested positive with his rapid antigen test, which we are required to do before entering the facility. 
I pitied the poor young receptionist, who was understandably in a state as she retested the man, now negative, got him off the property, and liaised with her manager, who was probably about to sit down to her Christmas lunch. My summer of Shakespeare continues, Macbeth this time. To complement it, I took down a favourite Patricia Highsmith, The Cry of the Owl. I may review the edition of Highsmith's diaries and notebooks. December 28. When I visited Mum, she was as wakeful as I've seen her in some time. I told her about the astonishing end to the Melbourne Test this morning. Australia took six wickets to bowl England out for 65, thus retaining the ashes. It was all over in two days and half a session, wonderful to behold. Scott Boland, the new Indigenous bowler, took six wickets in his four overs. Then I told Mum that the Queen finally looked old in her Christmas message, despite her brilliant red dress. Mum wasn't surprised. Quote, she's 95, four months older than me. Then she said, apropos of nothing, that life had dealt me a bad hand. I demurred. She looked away. December 29. Victoria recorded almost 4,000 infections today. New South Wales, more than 10,000. The nursing home notified us that visits are limited to one nominated person per family for the foreseeable future. December 30. The news from around the world is terrible. All sorts of records are being set. Modellers have suggested that Australia could have 100,000 cases a day by February. Everything is once again uncertain. To the nursing home this afternoon. Mum was wakeful at first, but the PM's press conference soon put her to sleep. December 31. Delivered the summer issue to readings. Bernard Kaleo, who reviews two graphic books in the new issue, was behind the counter, so we did a high five. Punctilius, newcomer Constant Muse, has sent me his review of a book on the making of the Bible. How I love getting my hands on other people's text. Onwards. Thanks for listening to the ABR podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 per month for digital. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Jack Khalil and Clancy Balin, who edit the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.